faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. Yes, it's Superman, strange visitor from another planet who came to earth with powers and ability far beyond those of mortal men. Superman who can change the course of mighty rivers, bend steel with his bare hands, and who disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolis Newspaper fights a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. You recognize that? Superman. In fact, my good brother back there has got a Superman shirt on. (laughs) He got the memo. Superman. And not only do we have Superman, but we've got Batman. We've got Spider-Man. And we've got all kinds of superheroes, don't we, in our culture. Our culture is saturated with this desire for what? For for heroes. For saviors. For someone who can make a difference. Who can do something better than we can do. In fact, we look up to so many people. We We all have heroes, don't we? We admire those who are strong. We admire those who are brave, those who are talented, those who are intelligent. Who did you look up to? Who was your hero when you were a kid? Was it a sports figure? Was it a baseball player? An actor or an actress that pretended like they were somebody? Maybe they were Superman? We have our icons. We have entrepreneurs. There's some people who look up to Steve Jobs. And he's a hero to so many people. And we're constantly looking for heroes, aren't we? And there's probably no greater hero that captures the imagination of kids and Christians than that hero named Samson. Samson. To have his strength to be able to do what he did. And I remember as a kid just thinking how awesome it would be to be like Samson. It says that Samson tore the lion apart with his bare hands. Can you imagine that? I'm scared of my own cat. (laughs) That he tied torches to the end of 300 foxes that ran through the fields and burned up the grain fields, the vineyards, and the olive groves. And boy, did he make some people mad. Or when he took the jawbone jawbone of a donkey and slayed 1,000 men in one day. Wow. What a hero. And so today we're going to look at the life of Samson from his super strength to his faith and then to his dalliances with the ladies. Because Samson was, after all, a ladies' man. And he came up in a time of the time of judges. 
That's the context for his life, the time of Judges. And there were 15 judges that appear in the Old Testament. And it was that time in between when the children of Israel have gotten into the promised land. And it was that time when they had gotten there and now they were waiting to have a king. And now these men, these regional heroes and women, were heroes of the faith. Everybody from Ehud, Barak, Gideon, Deborah, and so on. And then, of course, the most famous... Samson. But it describes the time. And it says this in Judges 21-25. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So during the time of Judges, during the time of Samson, you had this time of spiritual anarchy. Spiritual anarchy, where everyone did what they wanted to do and what was right in their own eyes. No one had a wrong and a right, true, black and white. None of that existed. But it was chaos, spiritual chaos. Does that remind you of any time? Does our time resemble that time? Gandhi one time quoted the minister Frederick Lewis Donaldson concerning the seven social sins. And listen to these seven social sins that this minister identified and see if it sounds like maybe what we're dealing with today. Wealth without work. Pleasure without conscience. Knowledge without character. Commerce without morality. Science without humanity. Politics without principle. And religion without sacrifice. Are we living in a day and age where every man does what's right in his own eyes? It seems that way, doesn't it? And it seems like the great truth that we espouse and that our culture espouses is that of relativism. And that's a fancy word that just means that there is no truth. That you've got your right and I've got my right and you've got your wrong and I've got my... And no one's really right. And you can do whatever you want as long as you don't get over here. There's no absolutes at all. Spiritual anarchy. But does that make any sense? And the fact of the matter is that now we live in a day and age where there's more moral outrage than it ever before. When you turn on the news, you see people in this country who are angry. They see things that are wrong in this country. And we see it every day. If you turn on the news, you'll see the Me Too movement. And should we be mad? Of course. We see school shootings. Should we be angry? Yes. The abuse of power, the destruction of our planet, racism, and the list goes on and on of all the terrible things that we see. And we're morally outraged over it. But then someone wants to suggest that really there's no morality at all. So the question is, how can you have so much moral outrage when there's no morality? The answer is, is it doesn't make any sense, does it? For there to be such moral outrage, there has to be a wrong and a right. There has to be a truth. And that we need a place and we need to be the kind of people 
that don't just do what's right in our own eyes, but pursue that which God wants. G.K. Chesterton made a very profound statement looking at his day and age, and it's very similar to ours. He said this, "But But the new rebel is a skeptic and will not entirely trust anything. He has no loyalty, therefore he can never be really a revolutionist. And the fact that when he doubts everything really gets in the way when he wants to denounce anything. For all denunciation implies a moral doctrine of some kind. And the modern revolutionist doubts not only the institution he denounces, but the doctrine by which he denounces it. The man of his school first goes to political meeting where he complains that the savages are being treated as if they were beasts. Then he takes his hat and umbrella and goes to a scientific meeting where he proves that they practically are beasts. In short, the modern revolutionist, being an infinite skeptic, is always engaged in undermining his own minds. In his book on politics, he attacks men for trampling on morality. In his book on ethics, he attacks morality for trampling on men. Therefore, the modern man in revolt has become practically useless for all purposes of revolt. Listen to this. By rebelling against everything, he has lost his right to rebel against anything. Think about that. When we say that there's something wrong and we see something that's wrong, when we denounce, make a denunciation, that means there is a right and a wrong, doesn't it? And that's the time in which Samson lived, in the time of spiritual anarchy. And guess what? Number one, Israel needed a Savior. Israel needed someone to stand up against the Philistines. In fact, it says in chapter 13, verse number 1, the Lord had delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. They were in captivity. They were being ruled by this pagan culture. And the children of Israel, when they entered into the promised land, they were given a choice. Remember? That at the very end of Joshua, in Joshua 24, Joshua tells them, we're going into the land And you have to make a decision. He says, for me and my household, we will serve the living God. But today, choose whom you will serve this day. But what happened in Israel was that they would obey, and then they would rebel. And then they would end up in captivity, and then God would raise up a judge to help them. Look at Judges chapter 2. And it gives this cycle that happens over and over again in the book of Judges, and among uh, the Judges. Judges chapter 2, and look with me. Judges chapter 2, 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked, In obeying the commandments of the Lord, they did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, saviors, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of the enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity 
by their groaning because they, those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and to bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn ways. And what you see is the same pattern. Judge after judge rises up and delivers them. And what do the people of Israel do again? They go back into serving idols. Another thing that we see within this, that also they would intermarry with the pagan culture, and that would also cause them to fall. But what we see with with this is that number two, God intervenes in the story through the judges, and He intervenes in the person of Samson. In chapter 13, it says, The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman, Manoah's wife. Indeed, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. So God saw the need of the people of Israel. He saw that they were under the pressure of the Philistines. And He rose up Samson to rescue them, to save them, to deliver them. And the Spirit of the Lord was on him. And of course, he had this physical strength. He was also intelligent. And also, he took the Nazarite vow, which is an interesting thing that we find in Numbers chapter 6, where it's the abstinence from all products of the vine. His hair is uncut, and there's no contact with the dead. But in the life of Samson, this strong man... What do we find? We find weakness. And in chapter 14, it gives us that first instance to where he goes to Timnah and to the daughters of the Philistines and he asks his parents, please get this woman from me. And his parents tell him not to. And he kills the lion with his own bare hands. And he eventually gives a riddle. And he says to solve it in seven days. And he does this over and over again in his life. He next goes to a harlot. And then he meets Delilah. And Delilah entices him to find out where his strength was. And if you remember, he gives her several chances to figure it out. In fact, he tells her four different things. Number one, if you tie me up with seven bowstrings, you'll got me. Didn't work. Well, if you tie me up with new ropes. The third thing that he said would, if you weave the locks of my hair. And if you, if you look at that, look, he's getting closer to the truth, isn't he? He's talking about his hair, and then by the end of it, he's talking about a razor. And of course, what happens to Samson? They capture him. They put his eyes out. They put him in prison. And then they say, hey, come on up, Samson. Come into the temple of Dagon and entertain us. And of course, we know what happens. that Samson stands between those two pillars and he pushes the walls down and slays 3,000 people in his death. You know... When I start to think about Samson, 
start to think, is that a hero? Is that really a hero or is that a tragedy? Because the story of Samson has all the hallmarks of a Greek tragedy, doesn't it? In a Greek tragedy or in the tragedies of Shakespeare, what happens? Everybody dies. And that's what happens in the life of Samson. That pretty much there is no victory, even though he does overcome the Philistines in his death. But what you see too is the Lord's working in fate. And what you see in those tragedies is fate and freedom colliding, don't you? It says that the Lord was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. And so God used Samson, his life, his goodness, and his mistakes to move against them. But there was also Samson's choices in the matter, wasn't there? What does it tell us about ourselves? It tells us about ourselves that number one, even the strongest of us have our weaknesses, don't we? And there's so many times in my life that I look to people and I say, wow, they are a strong Christian. They're a strong person. They're resilient. They're persevering. But within all of us, no matter how strong we are, there's weakness, isn't there? In fact, Paul said, He that thinketh he standeth, take heed lest he fall. And that's why forgiveness is so important, isn't it? Because no matter how strong we are, no matter how good we think we are, we're all sinners, aren't we? Needing forgiveness. Needing God's Word. Needing His Holy Spirit. Needing His church. No matter how strong we think we are. It also shows me the importance of character. That for all of His strength, That for all the things that he could do out there, it was within himself that he had the biggest struggle. He could struggle with a thousand men and win. But when it came to his own appetites, when it came to his own character, that's where he struggled the very most. It reminds me of that Greek story of Achilles. Achilles' mother found out that Achilles was going to die young. And so she took Achilles down to the river Styx. And if she submerged him into the river Styx, it would make him invulnerable. And it says that when she dipped him into the water, she submerged every part of him except what? His heel. You know what? Sometimes I think there's some of us who have submerged ourselves into the waters of baptism, we've got everything wet except for our heart. It's about character. In fact, it says in Proverbs 25-28, whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. Think about that. That if I can't control myself, if I can't control my appetites, then the walls are not down And I have no defenses anywhere. And isn't that who Samson was? Another thing that I'm reminded about Samson is that his parents were right. Young people, it's always good to listen to someone who's older than you and someone who loves you 
Because ultimately they want your life to be what it needs to be. And they have wisdom for that. And Samson's parents were right, weren't they? The power of marriage. The most important relationship that we enter in our lives other than the relationship with God and His people is the relationship we have with our spouse. And here Samson was entering into one bad relationship after another that was constantly compromising who he was. Another thing it tells me is that we got to learn from our mistakes, don't we? Did Samson ever really learn from his mistakes? He kept making the same one over and over again. And sometimes I feel the same way. I'm good at making the same mistake. But ultimately, the greatest lessons that we learn from Samson is number one, the forbearance and mercy of God. That over and over again in the book of Judges, what is God doing? He's providing a way for His people to be delivered no matter how bad they've been. And that's hope for me and you. Because ultimately, God didn't send us to Samson. God didn't send us a strong man. God sent us Jesus. And when we look at the life of Jesus, we don't see a life filled with flaws like Samson had. We see a perfect life. One who did no sin, neither was there guile found in his mouth. What we see is not one who lived in violence, but one who offers peace. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto thee. Jesus offers a peace, He offers life. With Christ, we don't see someone who died with His enemies, but one who died for His enemies. Think about that. Samson went out with a vengeance, didn't he? But when we see our Savior, when we see Christ, we see someone not killing His enemies, but we see someone literally laying down His life for those who hate Him. But while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Our Savior is not one who is dead, but one who is living. One who was raised that third day. And just as Israel needed a Savior, just as Israel needed someone to help them, you and I need someone. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. Have you obeyed Him? Have you obeyed the true Savior? Because no strong man can take His place. No entrepreneur can take His place. No sports hero, no actor or actress, no hero that we have on the stage of life now can take His place. It's only Jesus It is He who died for your sins and who conquered death. And the Bible says that if we want to live that life, that we have to believe in Him. That we have to believe what He said. That we have to repent of our sins. Confess Him to be the Son of the living God and be immersed into His body, the church. And that's not just something that happens on the outside of us. But it changes us fundamentally who we are by His grace. Or maybe you're a Christian this morning, but you found that 
your walls have been broken down. That you haven't had the rule over your spirit. Today offers an opportunity for you to recommit yourself. To renew yourself to His service. Or maybe you need prayers of encouragement or healing. We're going to sing this next song to encourage you this morning. So if you will, if you have any need, won't you come now as together we stand and as we sing.